0: We are starting a brand new subject today. It's one, though, that is integral with the course, and that's the study of the oceans. Uh, As we'll see, um, not only do the atmosphere and the ocean interact, each influences the other, which makes it necessary to understand both. But also, to some extent, they obey similar uh, laws of physics. For example, um, questions of Static stability, when will a column of air turn over? When will a column of water turn over? Uh, what makes the um, winds blow? What makes the ocean currents move? Coriolis, Coriolis force plays a similar role in both. So uh, this would be a time not only for you to learn a few new things about the ocean, but to establish more linkages between the things you've learned before and the things you're learning now. Now that we're you know halfway or almost halfway through the course, um, linkages, linkages are a big part of the course where you find connections between thing, between things we've already done and things we're learning now. So try to flag those whenever you're whenever you come across them. I think it'll help you learn the material more, and then it'll establish a sense I hope of of unity in the course where things begin to gel and become easier because a very limited set of physical principles can apply to a wide range of uh, geophysical phenomena. So, um, okay, so what we're gonna do today, I'll probably just do the first two. We'll talk about the um, bathymetry of the oceans. The word bathymetry here means the study of the ocean depth. So it's pretty straightforward, just how deep is the ocean? That's the subject of bathymetry. We're going to see, however, that that ties very closely to plate tectonics. Now, if you were taking a course in geology, which my department offers a number of, you would study plate tectonics in quite some detail. It's the the modern paradigm to understand how the continents were formed and the oceans were formed and a number of the things you see in rocks. We're just going to touch on it briefly because this isn't a course in geology, but I need to do it because You can't understand the bathymetry of the oceans without understanding a bit about plate tectonics. Has anybody had a course in geology where they've talked about plate tectonics? Sarah has, I know. So you're going to see that stuff coming back, but fairly quickly. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. We'll spend most of today talking about temperature and salinity, and we might get into ocean currents today. But if not, that'll be the subject of next time. And then biological productivity will eventually maybe Friday or next week get into um, El Nino. Sarah reminded me that there's no chapter in your book on oceanography, so um, we're kind of on our own here. These notes will be posted. But uh, there is a section on El Nino, and you're going to want to read that, and that'll give a little background information about the oceans. And there may be a few little other bits and pieces scattered throughout the textbook on oceanography. So take advantage of what you have there. But realize there isn't a great deal, and so you'll have to rely fairly heavily on the notes here. Okay, so some of you have seen this, probably most of you have seen this. The basic idea behind plate tectonics <coughs> is that the, the um, spherical uh, skin of the Earth, this uh, shallow layer called the crust, that's rather rigid. Floating above a deeper semi-liquid mantle, that crust is broken into several discrete uh, plates. The Indo-Australian plate, the African plate, the South American plate. And those plates, as they move around, remain rigid. And so the interactions, or the interesting parts, occur at the boundaries where one rigid plate butts up against another uh, and some kind of interaction occurs. Maybe it's a subduction zone. Maybe it's a, a new, new plate material being formed. But um, that's the way we, we try to understand the structure of the Earth these days, is to understand where are these plates, and how, to their, how do their edges deform as the plates move around. So for example, that boundary there is a mid-ocean ridge, or a so-called mid-ocean spreading center. You can tell that from the arrows. So new ocean crust is being formed at that point, and so this plate is moving away from that plate at a certain rate. Up here in the North Atlantic as well, you've got the plates pulling away from each other, and new ocean crust is being formed. In a line like that, look, have uh, this artist has used kind of a coal front symbol. I don't know where he got that idea from. But the basic idea here is that that symbol for this artist is referring to a subduction zone where one plate is being drawn out, drawn down under another, and so uh, crustal material is being disappeared. It's being returned down into the mantle of the Earth. Notice that um, some plates are consisting of ocean only. Some plates are consisting of a combination of continental crust and ocean crust. Okay, so that's the basic idea behind plate tectonics. Um, The plates are shown also in this cartoon. And once again, uh, note that, for example, this large Pacific plate, fairly rigid and giant in size, is ocean uh, crust only. Whereas most of the others, not the Nazca plate, but the Australian plate has ocean crust plus continental crust. Eurasian plate has both. North American plate has a big uh, chunk of ocean in it. So when you think about plates, you remember the earlier, th- the thing that preceded this was the theory of continental drift. Continental drift was the idea that uh, p- people noticed this nice jigsaw fit, for example, between South America and the Bight of Africa, or the way this coast kind of could fit in against here, or the fact that the rocks here were similar to the rocks there up in Scotland. So the idea was that early on that the continents may have moved, but the early idea was that they moved through the ocean. The continents plowed their way through ocean crust to move around on our our planet. Um, However, that was uh, soon found to be incorrect, because the physics of trying to push A continent through ocean crust were shown to be impossible. Instead, this is the vision that now uh, seems to be the right one, where you've got plates sometimes consisting of continents and oceans. They move relative to to one another, and all the action is right at their boundaries, whether it's creation of new crust or the destruction of crust. So this is the the conceptual model that seems to fit all of the um, all the data that we have. And um, what would drive that kind of motion? Well, it's basically part of the mantle convection. So there's heat being generated in the interior of the Earth by the decay of radioactive elements, like uranium and so on. Decays naturally, releases heat. The interior of the Earth heats up, and that that destabilizes the lapse rate, if you like. And basically, if you're heating this fluid from below, you're destabilizing it, and convection begins. And part of the, as part of that convection cell, then you get spreading centers for the crust, and then subduction zones where some of that crustal material is drawn back into the mantle and melted and returned. So it's not a um, crust-only phenomena. It's driven by, the, by mantle convection. But um, for our purposes, we're interested primarily in what it does to the crust of the Earth. So going back into geologic time, uh, we can see this happening. So here's the present day. And then we go back in time to the Cretaceous, the Jurassic, the Triassic, and Permian. Here's the geologic time scale. (coughs) Um, The age of the Earth, this is in thousands, in, in, in millions of years. So um, the age of the Earth is back here around five, roughly 5 uh, billion years ago. And the first one of these diagrams that the artist is showing is the Permian, which is about 255 million years ago. At that point, all the continents were together in a giant supercontinent called Pangaea. And then as time progressed, uh, it split up, first with a seaway that came through this way, and then eventually you began to get the Atlantic Ocean opening up, and today you have something like this. So we're going from 255 million years ago for the Permian, and then stepping forward to the, the Triassic, the Jurassic, the Cretaceous. So when the um, dinosaurs roamed the Earth, it was in this stage. And um, when humans evolved, well, it was already looking like this, So so humans never saw this configuration. Um, humans evolved just in the last couple of million years. So we've, we've been looking at that structure for our evolutionary history. Now, um, So what does this mean for the, the structure of the oceans and the continents? So here's a section through, um, let's take it through here, I guess, an east-west section. Um, I think it's in the southern hemisphere, let's check that. Yeah, so there's South America. So this is an east-west section uh, through the uh, South Atlantic Ocean. It shows the Pacific Ocean plate, which is continental crust, being subducted below the mountains of South America. As that material is drawn down into the mantle, it melts. As it melts, um, some lavas, some magmas come off of that that then make their way upwards to cause the volcanoes along along the west coast of South America. Otherwise, the rest of that material is just lost down into the mantle. Um, When you get over into the Atlantic Ocean, there's a rigid boundary there. That's part of the same plate. Continental crust and ocean crust, part of the same plate. But there's a spreading center. That's where molten material is coming up again and solidifying as it cools to form new ocean crust. So this is moving away while new ocean crust is being created right at that point. And then over here, that's a rigid, rigid uh, connection. So that, once again, is part of the same plate with no uh, crust being lost or gained at that particular boundary. But the point I want to make here is that um, there are two types of crust continental crust is generally of a lighter material and floats a bit higher in the semi-molten parts of the mantle, whereas the ocean crust is a little bit denser and um, floats a bit lower. So um, you've got basically a lower floating ocean crust here and a a less dense, higher floating um, continental crust. And then when you fill that with water, the water has nothing to do with this, of course, but the addition of water makes it seem like an ocean to us, There's, it, there happens to be enough water uh, in the ocean to generally cover um, the ocean crust, but not to cover the continents. Now, if there were you know, twice as much liquid water available on the planet, um, that distinction would be less important, because the water level would be here, and it would cover both the ocean crust and the um, and the continental crust but with the amount of water that we have it means that the continental crust usually sticks above sea level and the ocean crust does not it's submerged below sea level sea level remember that oh, that amount of water is quite unconnected with any of this the amount of water we have on the planet probably did come out of the interior of the planet over geologic time but it's just an accident that it happens to be deep enough to cover the ocean crust, but not the continental crust. And we'll find a few exceptions to that when we look more closely as well. Any questions on this? Yes. So what are the actual differences between ocean crust and continental crust besides the different densities? Well, they're made of slightly different uh, chemical compositions. Normally. Um, the, uh, there's more, I think, more quartz generally in, this, in these rocks that are, as a light mineral allows it to be a little bit denser, a little bit less dense. And uh, other uh, denser minerals are found more prolifically in the ocean crust, which makes it a little bit, a little bit um, denser. Um, OK, we'll come back to that. But I wanted to make this point. So when you then take a uh, what's called make a hypsometric curve. Um, And I'm going to focus on the bar graph over here on the left. This is elevation in meters above and below sea level. Sea level is marked at zero here, which I remind you is a somewhat arbitrary choice. It depends on how much water we have in the oceans. And uh, over geologic time, that has probably changed a little bit. For example, when you have an ice age, store some of that water up on the continents in the form of glaciers, and sea level drops a little bit. So that is kind of an arbitrary reference point, but, but it's commonly used, and so we'll use it here. What's shown in the bar graph, then, is the percent of the Earth's surface that lies, for example, between sea level and one kilometer above. And it's about 20% of the Earth's surface. Between one kilometer and two kilometers above sea level, it's about 5%. Of Earth's surface, and you find some parts on the continents that are even higher, even up to four. But you know, in fact, Mount Everest is up here somewhere. There's even a little bit of land that lies 9,000 meters above sea level. Going down below sea level, um, you find there's not much land at one kilometer, two kilometer, and three kilometers below sea level, but a lot at four, five, and six kilometers now below sea level. Now this is a bit of a surprise, because if the Earth was just a rough surface, had been roughened by some process, it would have kind of a normal distribution for this hypsometric curve. It would have some average height and then less above and less below. But actually, no, this has a, um, a double peak, a very interesting double peak. And of course, that has to do with the point I already made. There are two types of crust here. This is um, continental crust and this is ocean crust. So this plate tectonics that gives us the two types of crust, ocean crust and continental crust, is the cause for this double peak in the hypsometric curve for uh, land elevation. And again, it just so happens that we have an amount of water that puts most of this down below sea level, and uh, some or most of the continents uh, just at sea level or slightly, or slightly above. So now we can turn to um, <coughs> the particular features, bathymetric features in the ocean. I'm going to talk about the abyssal plain, which are these flat-lying parts of the ocean bottom. And then uh, some of these other things that have to do with plate tectonics, like the mid-ocean ridges, the trenches, and then some other features as well. Uh, The way we know all of this, by the way, is from acoustic depth profiling. So you take a ship, and it sends out an acoustic signal, a sound wave, and you bounce it off the bottom. And you time CZ northward to go down to the bottom of the ocean in the summertime. Mumbai, here, or many other places in Southeast Asia, we find those northward pointing arrows. So every time you see the northward pointing arrows, including some over here, that is the northward shift of the ITCZ, reaching that location in the summertime. But let's look at some other locations. For example, in the Mediterranean region, all along, <laughs> uh, which means a, uh, a wintertime maxima. And that would be, of course, the cyclones, the frontal cyclones. Uh, they, the, the polar front uh, strengthens and moves southwards. And then throughout the winter, you have storm after storm after storm, frontal activity that'll bring rain to this area. And if we go around to California, we find something a little like that. The air is a little bit tilted, generally tilted aiming towards the equator. With some, some lag, but that would be called, uh, as I'll describe later, uh, California is often described as having a Mediterranean climate, because it has the same kind of wintertime precipitation that does, that does the Mediterranean. So that's a pretty handy diagram. Now there are some oddballs. There are some things uh, in weird directions. For example, uh, the air. So this is a cartoon. Just showing some of the features. Um, for example, there's a section of abyssal plain, a kind of flat-lying section. Uh, flat in part because it's composed of sediments that have fallen from above. And as they be the things that bring in the cracks first, and then they, as you get quite a pile of sediments, it tends to give you a flat surface. Questions? One of these spreading centers. Uh, where magmas are coming up and forming new. Uh, to read you something here, um, erotic rocks are still hot and less dense. Imagine these are old questions. People have been asking themselves these questions for years until they cool down was very curious about it. Um, he was a perhaps a Greek, perhaps the first historian, some would say, and he spent most of his life in Greece, but uh, once in his life, he traveled down to Egypt. And here's what he writes about that, um, about why, why the Nile behaves precisely as it does. I could get no information from the priests or anyone else. What I particularly wished to know was why the water begins to rise at the summer solstice, continues to do so for 100 days, and then falls again at the end of that period so that it remains low throughout the winter. He's talking about the the water level in the Nile River. Uh, Remains low throughout the winter until the summer solstice comes around again in the following year. Nobody in Egypt could give me any explanation of this in spite of my constant attempts to find out what was the peculiar property which made the Nile behave in the opposite way to other rivers. Um, So I'll, I'll leave it there, but can anyone answer? Herodotus' question, why does the Nile (laughs) behave the opposite to other rivers? Want to venture a guess? Yeah. That's exactly right. So when he says other rivers, he's talking about all the rivers he's ever seen in his life, which is Generally, the river is coming off, you know, in the, from the Mediterranean region, and that's going to be mostly winter time, due to this southward shift of the of the uh, of the polar front. Um, the Nile, on the other hand, um, actually the water doesn't originate from here. The water originates further south. Let's go back to my little arrow diagram. Yeah, there it is. Um, so here's. Uh, Herodotus spending his life here looking at rivers that have a wintertime or a springtime maxima. And now he's down in Egypt um, looking at water that actually fell down in this region. The source of the Nile we now know is up in the the Eastern, in the Horn of Africa over in this region. And that has a summertime precipitation. So he's really, uh, the answer to his uh, question then is exactly what you said. It's the fact that the Nile is controlled by the Water that falls here, which is controlled by the northward shift of the intertropical convergence zone. Questions on that? Okay. So now we're going to, well, I want to make this one last point about season. So you uh, being raised around here, or in North America, at these latitudes, probably think that seasonality has a lot to do with temperature. And you'd be right, but that's a narrow parochial attitude from where you were raised. If you were raised in the tropics, you would think that seasonality has everything to do with rainfall. If you make a figure like this, and I think you, you might be able to do this with some of the data that you're given in the problem set. If you take the 12 monthly um, precept and 12 monthly temperature points and plot them and connect them with, uh, with lines that, that uh, link them up in, uh, in, in chronological order, They'll form some kind of a figure on this temperature precipitation map. And in the tropics, for sites in the tropics, that figure looks like this. You get a big precipitation seasonality, but not very much change in temperature. On the other hand, in mid-latitudes, you get a big temperature change, but not much change in precipitation. So now this wouldn't apply for every month for every mid-latitude site in every tropical site. But generally, this is the rule, that seasonality in the tropics is referring to a precipitation seasonality, a wet season and a dry season. Whereas seasonality in mid and high latitudes is referring primarily to a temperature seasonality. So seasons mean different things depending where you were brought up. So don't get caught in that when you're talking to someone from a different land. so now we turn to this question of climate classification. We'd like to codify all of this. And um, the way forward on this was uh, over 100 years ago by Kuppen, and then later others have modified this slightly. So our, there are a few different versions of this scheme around, but generally it's called the Cuppin the Climate Classification Scheme. It uses the 12 monthly temperature and precipitation values. Uh, uh, with thresholds to assign each point on the Earth to uh, a small set of climate zones. And the way those thresholds are designed is that it tries to capture those aspects of climatology that would control the vegetation that grows. So ideally, if the Kuppen scheme works uh, in a particular climate zone defined by temperature and precipitation, you would find a particular kind of natural vegetation, because it's adapted to that particular climate zone. Uh, There are six broad categories, tropical, uh, dry, temperate, continental, polar, and highland climates. And then, as you know already, because you're working on the problem set, there are subcategories under those. And um, well, they're a little bit, let's face it, they're a little bit messy to work with. this is a table I pulled off of a recent uh, published paper uh, on the Koppen classes. and it may be that these definitions are a little bit different than the one you have in the back of the book. but you get the point that is you you define the broad category like the A climates in terms of the uh, whether the minimum temperature is higher than a certain value. and then you uh, break it down into subcategories based, in this case, on, on precipitation. The, um, the arid climates, precipitation annual total um, less than 10 PTH. I don't know what that is. Um, but then it's subdivided into two categories. Desert would be the very dry areas, and the steppe would get a little more precipitation, and so on. So using the temperature and precipitation values, you go through and you classify each Area by its, by its seasonal cycle and the mean values. And you end up with something like this. I think this is from your textbook, or you have a diagram like this in your textbook, where the color schemes represent the different climate categories. For example, the moist tropical climates are the A climates, AW, AF, AM. The uh, dry climates, uh, you find they're the, they're the B climates. You find some of them in the desert areas here and here. uh, And in the desert southwest, you find some B climates and so on. This is the Western Hemisphere, North and South America, and then we do something similar to that for uh, Asia, um, Africa, and Australia as well, using the same scheme. So, you know, pretty, it's not zonal, but you can see zonal aspects to it. Uh, but all of those factors that I mentioned the other day are working, not only the, the zonal aspects of the general circulation, but also the mountains, the continentality, and the, uh, the, warm, the um, <coughs> cool, cool and warm ocean currents that are bringing up water to the coastlines of these continents. They're all playing some, some role in this. North America looks like this. It's pretty simple east of the Mississippi. Um, West of the Mississippi, it's more complicated, because you have some mountainous areas and some contrast between wet and dry areas. Let's look at three cities in North America. Um, Sacramento in California. Now, that is a classic Mediterranean climate, right? The precip is in the wintertime when the temperature is down. So Sacramento has a Mediterranean climate, and that would be a CSA climate in the Kuppen scheme. New York City, close to us. This this might as well be New Haven. New Haven's very much like this. Pretty much the same rainfall throughout the year, but a very strong temperature seasonality. That's a DFA climate. Miami uh, has a summertime precip, mostly from thunderstorms in the summertime, and then uh, Denver is a drier climate in general. Also, uh, well, it's more of a spring maxima. We talked about why that is. In the springtime, you tend to get these uh, severe thunderstorms that occur in that part of the world, because you get the right jet stream aloft and the moist air coming in from the Gulf of Mexico. But that extends to some extent throughout the winter, throughout the summer as well. The reason why the winter is so dry is because in the wintertime, those storms coming from the Pacific lose their rain in the Rockies. And by the time it gets to Denver, they're pretty dry. So you don't get much precipitation in the wintertime in in Denver. Let's look at Africa for a second. There's the Kuppen scheme for Africa. And let's look at the AF climates, which are the tropical rainforest. That's this deep blue area here. A lot of water and uh, dense tropical forest vegetation. Then if we look at the BSH climate which is the steppe climate that would be up in um, that'd be up in here these little golden or yellow areas they get one pulse of precip every year when the ITZ moves northward and then it's dry for the rest of the year so a brief rainy season providing enough water for the grass but you see now it's browned out well still a little bit green up there and um, And then that rain moves back to the equator and then back into the southern hemisphere later on. So that gives you the steppe climates of of Kenya, for example. By the way, these animals, the wildebeests, are mobile animals, and very often they will travel several hundred miles trying to follow that shift in the ITCZ. So they, they don't understand it, but they uh, have evolved to know that if they move southward, they c- can get a longer season where the grass will be green and they can get good, uh, good eating that way. And then you have the, um, the BWH climate, the really dry climates up in here. That's the red one, the deep red one. And of course, that's a place where it really seldom rains in any season of the year. The ITCZ doesn't get that far north. And the frontal cyclones don't get that far south. So you've got this zone in between where you've got the it's the the descending branch of the Hadley cell, of course. The air is descending there, uh, keeping it from precipitating. But that's because the ITC never reaches there, and the polar front never reaches there. It's this kind of dry area in between. Questions there? India. Let's take a look at Europe, for example. I want to get back on this issue of the the Mediterranean climate. This yellowish is the CSA climate. You see it all along the coast, north and south coast of the Mediterranean. And that's why that is called a Mediterranean climate. Oops. And so when you look at Lisbon in Spain, it has that characteristic of a cool season precipitation. If you look at Jerusalem, It has the characteristic of the cool season precipitation. Cairo, the same thing. So, you know, that's a pretty common, that's a kind of a uniform climate zone. And then I've already shown you this, but switch over to Sacramento. Well, it looks just the same. So, so that's why we say uh, Southern California has a Mediterranean climate because it fits that general picture from the Mediterranean. And again, I've said this enough times, but this one is due to the Southward shift of the polar front and the and the rain that comes in, in frontal cyclones. Questions. Let's look at. Uh, let me. I think we're close to the end here. We may finish a few minutes early. That'd be nice. Um, let's look at a couple <coughs> little additional examples of seasonality. Um, here's a couple of satellite images taken from North America from South America, where the uh, the Maranon and the Ukiali Join to form the Amazon. And uh, at the end of the rainy season, those rivers are pretty swollen. Every place you see blue, that's water. Uh, but at the end of the dry season, the flow in those rivers is very much reduced. And what the purple color here is are those dry sandbanks on the side of the river, because the river is now lower and moving much more slowly. You have barren, unvegetated areas. And of course, this has been meandering through time. On the field trip the other day, we were talking about how that meandering river has flattened out the Quinnipiac salt marsh. Well, you see here, everywhere you look, old places where that river used to be. So that's been meandering back and forth over geologic time, leaving all these little remnants of, of uh, meanders in the river. And that, most of that erosion takes place in the, uh, in the wet season when the flow of the rivers is high. Um, here in New England, the DFA climate, as I mentioned, it's a, um, it's a temperature seasonality rather than a precipitation one. And so the summer times look like this with the deciduous trees being out. Then they drop their leaves and it gets very cold and the snow falls, such as you see there. Um, I put together a little set of satellite images here to make another point about New England. <coughs> New England seasonality. Um, Looking down from a satellite, you can map out the distribution of vegetation using something called NDVI. It's the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index. It's the ratio of the reflectivities in two different visible bands. Well, sorry, it's the ratio of the reflectivity in the near-infrared to the red. Turns out that vegetation has a very strong signature if you look at those two bands. Here's four months, April, June, August, and November. Now, as you first glance at that, you may say, well, they look a lot alike. And I guess they do. But I'm going to take some differences between these plots to try to bring out the, uh, how things have changed with seasons, how the vegetation has changed with season. And that's shown in the next plot here. Um, in this one, I'm calling it a leaf out index. Because I've taken the June NDVI and subtracted it from April, so I'm finding how much the vegetation has changed from April into June. Well now, if you've lived in this in New England at all, you know that the big event between April and June is the leaf out of the deciduous trees. Usually that happens in in mid-May here in Connecticut. And so uh, when I take this difference, what I'm mostly going to be seeing is the, the, the uh, distribution of deciduous trees, oaks, maples, um, and so on. And that's what we see. So the seasonality in New England, while it is a, at its root, it's a temperature seasonality, it also has a big impact on the vegetation. Leaf on, leaf off, controlled by that temperature, and you can see it from space. Now, in areas where there hasn't been much change, those might be conifers that look about the same in the winter and summer, or they might be barren areas where there's no vegetation in either season. Is that clear what I've done there? I've subtracted the NDVI from of uh, April June minus April to get the difference in vegetation. And in this case, it's going to show me where the deciduous trees have leafed out because of the seasonality. I'm going to do the same trick now for August minus June to see how vegetation has changed over um, the summer. And you see these little pockets of red are where there's a big positive change, where there's much more vegetation in August than in June. I'm calling that the growing season, because what that's going to do is pick out uh, the agriculture. Farming in this part of the world is usually a summer activity. You plow and plant in the in the spring, and then your crops grow. Your corn or your (laughs) wheat or whatever grow over the summer months, and you harvest in August, September, October. So this difference between those two months is largely going to be a measure of where agriculture remains. There's not much left in New England, uh, but we can see exactly where it is. There's quite a bit of agriculture in western New York State near the Finger Lakes. There's some uh, in the upper, uh, the very upper Hudson Valley and up into Canada, around Montreal. There's quite a bit down here in eastern Pennsylvania. Those are the Amish farms uh, growing their crops down in eastern Pennsylvania. A little bit in Connecticut, up around uh, Springfield and Massachusetts, and some places in Connecticut you find some agriculture. But again, this is seasonally driven, right? So human activity here is being driven by the by the seasonality, and ultimately, which goes back to the tilt of the Earth's axis. Any questions on this? Now, another aspect of seasonality for New England, and this is particularly timely, because we were just out on the river the other day. So I've already told you, and I've shown you, in fact, that New England gets about the same precipitation in every month of the year. Why is it then? then if I look at the daily discharge data from the Quinnipiac or most other rivers, that there is a seasonal cycle to it. More discharge in the winter, less in the summer, June, July, and August. Winter, less in the summer, June, July, August. Uh, It didn't drop quite as much in the summer of 2006, but then it dropped even more in the summer of 2007. This is a log scale. So this is a very significant change. This is an order of magnitude difference. Look, this is um, 200 to 300 to 400 cubic feet per second, down to, well, 60 or 70 cubic feet per second down there. So a gigantic seasonality in the river flow, and yet not the rain. What's going on there? you got to tell me this one. Somebody tell me this. Yeah. part of it, but not in the Quinnipiac. That would explain some of the rivers further north in New England, but the Quinnipiac doesn't get much snow down here in Connecticut. So that wouldn't explain it. We need another explanation for this. Yeah? Yeah. Evaporation. So remember, evaporation is, uh, A, it's very strongly controlled by temperature. And since New England has a temperature seasonality, you're going to get a big seasonality in evaporation. Also from the trees, the deciduous trees, evaporate water from their leaves. As soon as the leaves fall off, you don't get that so-called evapotranspiration. So that's a big seasonal cycle. So during the wintertime, most of the rain that falls ends up in the rivers. During the summertime, most of the rain that falls evaporates, and much less flows down river to the sea. So, so here's a question. I mean, if, does, um, does uh, New England have a wet, dry season? Well, that depends on how you define it, doesn't it? Because it doesn't have much of a, a seasonal variation in precipitation, and yet it's got a strong seasonality in the amount of water in the rivers because of the evaporation effect. Question on that? And um, I think that's the last one, almost the last one. So uh, I took a, a couple of satellite images from Alaska, in, um, one in June, one in November. And uh, June, early summer, there's still a lot of snow cover from the previous year. The melting has begun there, uh, but it takes several months of warm conditions before you get rid of most of that snow. So. Um, You see snow, a little bit of barren land, some water out here. Um, In November, next month, it looks so different. Well, part of that is because there happened to be more clouds on that day. But I wanted to make a couple other points. There's actually less snow then than there was earlier because the snowfall is just beginning. But here's the thing I wanted to show you that intrigued me. I hope you can see that from the back. There's a curious little line, a little dark light contrast right there. And that is evidence of the low sun angle. Remember, in this season of the year in Alaska, high latitudes, the local solar zenith angle is going to be quite large. That sun is slanting in at a very low angle. And that little line I'm seeing there is the shadow of this mountain range cast across the valley onto the facing slope. Not too relevant for climatology, I grant you, but a reminder that the sun angle is very low at that season. And that itself, I guess, is a kind of seasonality. If you live down in this valley, uh, you wouldn't see any sunlight uh, in the wintertime. But you might in the summer when the sun's higher in the sky. But then you'd have snow at that earlier part of the year. And then uh, just to remind you that it's not just the smooth cycle of the seasons that matters. But it's the events that can also <clears throat> matter um, and um, would be normally considered to be part of the climatology. For example, hurricanes, which are discrete events, and you may not even get one in any particular year, but still, they occur in the late summer-fall in either hemisphere. Uh, severe Oklahoma thunderstorms are a springtime phenomenon. Nor'easters in New England are wintertime. California fires primarily in the fall. Antarctic hoes on the whole, we'll discuss that later in the course, occurs in October. And El Nino, when it starts up, we'll discuss this too, usually starts up in December. So uh, it's not just a smooth cycle of the seasons, but it's the way the seasons control events that can be quite important as well. Uh, Any questions on this or anything else about seasonality? I think that's it today. Any questions on this? OK, good luck on the exam. I'll see you Friday for that. The CTD is a great advance on that, but it doesn't give you the water sample. So what's usually done today is that they have a set of water-collecting bottles arranged around the perimeter, and that's called the, the rosette. And they've got an electronic control where the valves on these can be closed. on on command. So in addition, so you send this down to the bottom of the ocean, profiling conductivity, temperature, depth. And then uh, every, I don't know, 500 meters or so, you might close one of the valves on these bottles, and you get a water sample from that depth as well. So if you were to go out on an oceanographic cruise today, you'd be largely using the CTD and the rosette to do vertical profiling of temperature and, um, and salinity. Questions on that? Um, so there's one they've brought it back on board, and they're and they're uh, I guess drawing samples off of the from the different water bottles there. Now technology is advancing even beyond that. However, uh, remember even with that one you have to get a ship there, you've got to get a cable over go all the way down to the bottom. That can take a couple hours to do, uh, and ship time is very expensive. So now the field is moving in the direction of these autonomous explorers, where it's a, uh, an unmanned vehicle uh, that you launch from a ship, but then it pretty much goes its own way, and you can control it. You talk to it with sonar, sending acoustic signals to it, which it can, it can receive. And it will then cruise around in the ocean, up or down or laterally, measuring you don't get water samples from this, but you get temperature, conductivity, and depth, because this has a, a CTD on board, and you can control it and move it wherever you want, back and forth. Uh, in one area, if you think conditions might be changing or uh, traversing larger parts of the ocean, if you want to map out a big piece of the ocean, of the ocean volume. So this is a new thing coming on. It's quite exciting uh, to have this. And you can be back in your office, actually, in a way. And this data is coming out on your screen. It's pretty remarkable that what this will mean for oceanography. This is just getting started. So this is really opening up brand new uh, doors for understanding the oceans, with these autonomous explorers. Any questions on that? Okay. So what do you get from this then? We're almost out of time. But here's a typical <coughs> ocean sounding temperature, salinity, and density, uh, versus depth. So on this plot, zero is taken to be sea level, and this goes down to about 4,000 meters, which is almost the depth to the abyssal plane. Very often you find rapid changes at first, and uh, when the temperature drops from warm surface to colder uh, values beneath, that region of strong temperature gradient is referred to as the thermocline. And you'll hear that term over and over again. It's very important in the ocean, this thermocline. In this particular sounding, it started about 200 meters below the surface. And by the time you got down to 500 or 600 meters, you were at a temperature of about 4 degrees Celsius, and then eventually down to just 1 degree Celsius. Whereas at the surface, you had 25, 26, 27 degrees Celsius. The salinity in this case was large at the surface, 34 0.9 became a bit fresher as you drop down through what's called the halocline, and then became slowly a little bit saltier beneath. Now, the density of seawater is controlled primarily by the temperature and the salinity. The density is a very important quantity. But if you know temperature and you know, and you know salinity, you can compute or you can measure the density. So what's plotted in this final panel is the density derived from the measured temperature and, and salinity. And it shows um, a lower density of water near the surface. By the way, the units are in uh, grams per cubic centimeter here. Remember, fresh water has a density of about one in those units. So this is a little bit denser than fresh water, and gets even denser by the time you get down to the bottom, primarily because of the temperature in this case. The colder temperature is giving rise to the lower, to the higher density um, in the deep ocean. I think I'm out of time, so we're going to continue this next time and talk about the concept of static stability. When will water? remain in layers, when will it overturn to form convection? And this will be the starting point for that discussion.